those teachers who I respect don't want to be in a punitive relationship to students. And I'm not going to spend my time trying to catch them, at least in my role as editor here, I'm not going to spend my time trying to catch them, you know, whether the stuff they submit is chat GPT or, or not. Um, as always, though, you know, this is what we do for a living. Every day when something's important in the news, we ask kids about it. So we did ask kids, how should schools respond to chat GPT? We asked them uh, late January. Almost 400 kids weighed in. Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. We're continuing our conversation with Catherine Shulton, who was editor-in-chief of the New York Times Learning Network, uh, which publishes free teaching resources based on Times journalism for middle and high school students and teachers. Uh, she's also the author of the recent book, Coming of Age in 2020, which is a compilation of essays, photos, comics, poems, and songs, and other works submitted by students to the Learning Network, showing how youth across the country cope during that tumultuous year. Um, and on top of that, uh, she was an English teacher and newspaper advisor for 10 years um, in Brooklyn, where she's sitting today. So welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I wanted to take a, a deeper dive into just kind of the, you know, the, the state of journalism, you know, so I had a father who was a, a, a journalist and and I, you know, a good part of my upbringing uh, was growing up in Washington D.C. As you know, we're close, and you and I are close in age. So it was as sort of civil rights was unfolding, and uh, feminism, and all these things. And it was always um, this whole notion of um, press freedoms and the First Amendment, and the importance of journalists, journalism as a watchdog, um, mm -hmm. was was um, ever evident. And I think perhaps in sort of our move towards more standardized testing and social studies and civics somewhat being taking a backseat, you know, uh, in terms of to, math and, and um, in English language arts, that we have a society of a younger society of people who really don't get the whole role of journalism <laughs> uh, and its intended what it was, what was intended by the framers, you know, um, and I, I just wanted to chat about that a little bit because from your vantage point, as both having been an educator, you know, and in your role at the Times, um, I mean, do we have a whole generation of people under twenty-five or thirty who just don't completely understand <laughs> that role? Right, right, or at least as as traditional newspapers, right? Um, right. Because of course. The other thing coming at us constantly is that they're never not on a news feed, right? Their social media is constant news, but it's not delivered in the way that you and I grew up getting our news. So right. one thing we've had to do, the Times has a whole section now that we draw on constantly on the site that basically is an explainer of journalism 
not just to kids, but to adults. Um, there's, you know, it's called Times Insider and it's constantly like, okay, here's how our polling works. Okay. Here's what happens when we use an anonymous source. Um, you know, here's why, like, you know, one thing we found over and over for adults and for kids is they don't understand the difference between the opinion section, right. Mm -hmm. And straight news. And granted, right. there are things like news analysis that the Times does that are sometimes a mix that, you know, I, I can understand why it's a little muddied to a student at least. But yeah, we find that we have to, because you're not getting a print paper and turning the page and seeing these things labeled the way we grew up, uh, and it's all coming to you through your phone in a different way, it is, it is requiring us to like step back and explain fundamentals to them. Um, and I'm not sure... It's hard to do a good job at that. <laughs> um, and like I think about, you know, you said you and Esther are working like her her revolutionary smart idea is that journalism teaches all the skills that you'd need in ELA anyway, but in this real world context. So I wonder right. if you actually have good solutions to this that I don't. Well, I'll tell you. So, uh, you know, speaking of Esther Wojcicki, who's a co-founder of our um, journalistic learning initiative and a really good friend and colleague. And, you know, um, I stumbled upon Esther and her work when I was still a graduate student uh, in 2010. We were both invited to a conference um, at Stanford and she had three of her students in tow. And um, and I had was unfamiliar with her, unfamiliar with with uh, her program. And I'm sitting there observing these, these three young people who are sharp, uh, mm. beyond sharp. And of course... Palo Alto. So the the school, uh, she grew up a, a program when she came there. Uh, there were maybe, I don't know, maybe two dozen students involved in the program. Now there's 750 or 800 students involved in the journalism program. Even though she recently retired, there's a legacy there of journalism okay. being a strong uh, piece of the, the culture. And um, and so my immediate thought was, well, it's Palo Alto. We're sitting on the campus at Stanford. It's across, you know, the schools across the street. It's one of the most affluent zip codes in America. You know, maybe that's why I'm observing these, um, you know, just just this sort of brilliance in, in these young people. But then, um, you know, I, I mean, I did a, both a quantitative and a qualitative study and compared other schools and, and you know, having been at involved in high school journalism when I was a high school student and growing up in a family where journalism was prominent, I just took for granted something that really, in a sense, does make sense, that mm -hmm. journalism is part of the curriculum, uh, maybe the only time in the day where a teacher turns to students and says, what are you intrinsically interested in and want to learn about more and go pursue? Yeah. And so that's that's been sort of the fundamental aspect of our organization um, that has um, had teachers and students, you know, really respond. Um, and so we piloted um, JLI in uh, 2016 at a middle school in rural Oregon, uh, in Junction City, Oregon, with sixth graders. And mm -hmm. it was amazing to see the, the depth of the questions. I mean, like, for example, they picked topics um, like veterans' rights and animal cruelty and, um, you know, homelessness and things that you, you would expect, but they, the depth of their questions and the way they were engaged, um, and we've tracked some of those students, like years later, who are now about to finish high school, and they tell us that that was one of the most memorable experiences 
that, you know, first of all, they had not, the only adults they ever spoke to were their parents, you know, for the most part, but to be able to, you know, just engage in those high level topics at such a young age was really, um, you know, insightful for them. So I, I share all that to say that I think that uh, we're, we're seeing states that are uh, making civics uh, mandatory again. Uh, they're realizing that, you know, this it's just, it's just not great for democracy if, if our young people don't understand, you know, how government works. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I see some positive. Uh, and I should say, even in that conservative community where we piloted, there was no pushback because we don't, you know, really don't politicize, um, you know, how we, how we do what we do. But, you know, we are seeing more division in the country. And I'm curious, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, just uh, this will this will be uh, published uh, somewhat after the State of the Union. But I mean, we're seeing like such divisiveness, you know, um, calling out the president of the United States on the floor of Congress, a liar, you know, or um, and all this anti critical race theory um, stuff. And. And it makes me ask you about the 1619 project because that's been a, a times, uh, uh, you know, just endorsed uh, project, and, and it's gotten pushback. Um, how did you, mm-hmm. how did you engage with that with the learning network? I mean, they had uh, already before that even existed. They had a um, relationship with the Pulitzer Center, who did the related curriculum. But mm-hmm. that said, there was such an outpouring of desire, you know, the, the times when that thing came out, the lines of people trying to get a print New York Times that, that weekend, and then uh, the, you know, the magazine section published many, 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 many more and used us as we kind of became the clearinghouse for helping schools and the magazine section get together to make sure that schools got them. Um, so we did have that role. And of course, our role is always to hear from teachers. What are you doing with the curriculum? So we've published a lot of pieces around how teachers have engaged with 1619. But the, the official curriculum for it is part of the Pulitzer Center, actually, not us. So we've gotten almost no pushback, I will say, uh, personally, about the 1619 Project. I think the people who come to the Learning Network, you know, we work really hard to contextualize everything we have. Like you said, it's in a, in a way that's with this little... You know, we want kids to have critical literacy, right? The notion that you call out, how is this created? What voices are missing? Like these kinds of things, not only about what we look around, you know, about the news, but also the times itself. Like what's missing? We always ask kids, what's missing from this reporting? Um, what more would you add? Are there, whose point of view, what powers, relationships are revealed, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I don't, I, I can't tell you exactly why we haven't, but we, have not gotten any pushback on that ourselves, even though I'm well aware of it around um, the world. Mm-hmm. Um, as for the other stuff, the book banning, etc., you know, it, it's funny because we there's there's certain ways in which, of course, we try to stay as unbiased as popular as possible as popular. What was that? Um, <laughs> but, but you know, there's like, is climate change happening? The Times says yes. Uh, you know, is, are we against book banning? Yes, we are. You know, there are certain things we're certainly not going to take a, a wishy-washy line on, right? Um, so all the book banning going on around the country right now uh, uh, is horrifying. And I don't, you know, we we recently had this was this goes to your question about Hazelwood, by the way. We recently did a huge piece around. 
um, all the bans around the country, et cetera. And are you aware of the Southern Poverty Law Center's New Voices Law? Or it's not a law, that's right. I'm gonna, I wonder if I can, it's, uh, I'm on the site now. It says, it's a student-powered, nonpartisan grassroots movement of state-based activists who are trying to protect student press freedoms with state laws that counteract Hazelwood. And certain mm. states have it. So that feels, you know, very, very hopeful and very, uh, you know, forward to these kids that are trying to do it. So, um, mm. Yeah, no, the, the Student Press Law Center does wonderful work. I was on their advisory board at, at one point. Uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, Journalism Education Association. And, and I, you know, I have to give credit to um, the National Council for Teachers of English for um, mm -hmm. just recently uh, putting out a policy statement around civics and how that should be a centerpiece of when we read that, we were like, oh, my God, you know, because um, uh, for so long, uh, English was sort of synonymous with literature and poetry and, and not really uh, mm -hmm. current, current events. And, and then when the Common Core, which also got politicized, but the Common Core standards came in and said that a good percentage of what students are, are engaging with should be nonfiction, a lot of teachers who got into uh, English because of their love of literature kind of didn't know what to do with that, you know, and it just turns mm -hmm. out that journalism is like the perfect fit, which is how that that first book of, of mine um, that you're holding um, was why it, it kind of came came on the heels of the Common Core. Um, I want to ask you about, um, you know, just you know, where journalism is, is going. You know, BuzzFeed uh, recently announced that you know, they laid off a lot of writers and they're replacing it with um, artificial intelligence. And oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, believe me, my fellow professors are wondering, are we going to have jobs? You know, <laughs> if, uh, cause I, it's, it's uncanny how, how, uh, the, the level of quality of the writing that, you know, and going to some of these, um, these AI, uh, computer generated articles, um, any, your thoughts about that or. Yeah, I, I mean, look, like everybody, I got obsessed in December and I went on ChatGPT and tried things out. And, you know, I told you we have 10 contests a year. Some of our contests are act absolutely, you know, perfect for ChatGPT. Right now we're asking kids, uh, you know, because of the whole science times, we're asking, we have a STEM writing contest in the in February every year where we ask them to take a current question in, in a STEM subject and explore it in a in a kind of user friendly way, right? Like the Times would. I can Chat GPT enter that contest? Certainly. <laughs> now, right now, I don't think Chat GPT is going to win the contest, but it's a huge problem for us because we already get, you know, ten thousand entries from kids around the world. Are we going to get twenty thousand, and are half of them going to come from a machine? You know, this is yeah. all up in the air, and this is what every teacher is is facing right now. Um, yeah. Uh, so, what you you look like you were going to ask something or say something? No, no. I just I know that because uh, I I subscribe to the the journalism education uh, association's listserv. So there's a whole discussion going on there, and I know that um, Paul Kendell, who uh, runs you now the program that Esther um, established um, at, at Palo Alto High School, is talking about having students in a sense pledge that whatever they submit is their own work 
Um, Mm -hmm. And so uh, because it does raise a question, I mean, what if you do have people just in attempt to in attempting to sort of game the system or, or, you know, or or make a point or submitting things that um, are computer generated? It's, you know, it's a problem, (laughs) you know. I mean, I'm always on the, I always want to trust kids, right? I think most teachers who I respect don't want to be in a punitive relationship to students. And I'm not going to spend my time trying to catch them, at least in my role as editor here, I'm not going to spend my time trying to catch them, you know, whether the stuff they submit is chat GPT or or not. Um, As always, though, you know, this is what we do for a living. Every day when something's important in the news, we ask kids about it. So we did ask kids, how should students, how should schools respond to chat GPT? We asked them uh, late January, almost 400 kids weighed in um, and and it's a real range. And what kids are saying kind of mirrors what teachers are saying, right? Some are like, you know, we're just fully gonna cheat. Like that's it, you know, how are we gonna (laughs) still learn? We're never gonna, like, this is it, game over. Other kids though, were like, teachers need to stop panicking. Like this is a tool. You know, we're, we should learn to use it in school. We should be thoughtful about it. We should look at the ethics of it. We should fiddle around with it and see what its limitations are. Um, we should use it. You know how everyone uses the calculator analogy? Like, it's just like when the calculator came in. Kids were kind of echoing that. So, I, I mean, they were very thoughtful about it. Um, and I think that's led by their teachers being, you know, teachers who aren't just fully freaking out and banning it and instead are kind of saying, what does this mean? How can we... Um, how can we think about this together and ethically and, you know, how can this fit into learning? I'm sorry, I live in Brooklyn, so you're never not going to hear a siren. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. No no problem at all. I want to ask you in in kind of in in closing, what's next for you? I mean, what are you turning your energy towards next? I mean, this is the dreamiest job in the world, right? Like I've had this job 16 years and my whole job, we the learning network we always say is limited only by our own creativity because our whole mandate is just help people teach and learn with what's in the times and that the times publishes our, our publisher once said this and we've been quoting it ever since every week the times puts out more articles than shakespeare published in his whole life right mm-hmm. so there's endless amount of material and that is multimedia that's uh you know fun quizzes that the times invents that's video that's graphs, that's whatever. So it's certainly not boring yet. And uh, being 60 as I am, I don't see myself going anytime soon. Um, On the other hand, I will say that the coming of age book has me has changed my own life. This is very personal. I'm a lifelong journal keeper. And part of this project grew out of asking kids to keep journals. But when we got this, when we got the results and we saw how absolutely stunning kids artwork was, and I don't mean the kind of kids who are getting scholastic awards. I mean, any old kid doodling in a notebook, the stuff that they sent to us was so expressive that I've started doing a daily visual journal just to be as wow. good as these kids. It's so, wow. it's such a different way to think if you've a, a lifetime reader and writer to suddenly start thinking in art. Um, and so I really want to like, go further both on the site and outside it with different multimodal expression, not just reading and writing. What else can kids do through video, through song, through um, any kind of artwork? All the kids who made comics for us, for instance, that seems like such a natural way of student expression. And it just really interests me. And every time we think we see one, the Times is going there too. The Times now has like dedicated 
you know, cartoonists who express the news in different ways. And so anyway, just the different modes of, of recording the world interest. Me yeah, no, play with them. we've seen uh, incredible growth in graphic novels and you know, all yes. kinds of ways that people are um, expressing themselves that, um, you know, that, that, that weren't as prominent before. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah. yeah. Well, yes, thank you, yes. Catherine. This has really been terrific. Uh, I really appreciate you taking time out to talk with us and, uh, and we'll keep following your work and what you're up to. Oh, a, a total pleasure. I, this, I would do this for fun any day. So thank you. And full okay. circle from our 2015 meeting, right? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.